Our text this morning is a psalm that came later in the history of Israel. I believe this is significantly after, uh, say, a psalm of King David, um, from the little that we know about Asaph, whether he was a person or kind of a, a string of, or a, a tone of about ten psalms. But I believe this is near to the time that the nation of Israel, which is both a race and an actual country and an ethnicity and a religion, especially at that time, all of those things firmly, was moved physically to another place. The people of God have, for most of their time, been a disenfranchised people. And one of the things that they do about that, perhaps not so much in the time of Solomon, but most of the rest of the time, one of the things that they do is they cry aloud to God. I'm I'm using the English Standard Version of the Bible because I prefer it. I'm in Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah, which is a term of pausing or perhaps a musical term. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said this, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your... You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that your Holy Spirit give us, attent- give us attentive minds and hearts to your text that you chose to speak to us through. Sanctify us with your word, Lord. Amen. What do you think this writer is grieving? I tried to give it some general context, but uh, one of the lovely things about the Psalms is the context of the Psalms is actually a distraction to their true purpose, which is to guide us in individual and corporate prayer, praise and lament and um, reorientation when we praise after something rough has happened, which this is. This is a psalm of reorientation. But what do you think's going on in verses 1 through 6? Do you think they're grieving? 
You think they're angry at injustice? You think they're depressed or anxious? Part of me wishes that I knew, and part of me doesn't need to know, because the purpose of Psalm 77 is to both is to teach us how to answer God for all of those things. How do we answer God in our moments of grief? I spoke with several friends this week who are grieving profoundly over the death of a loved one. These words help us in our time of grief. These words pray us, perhaps when we don't have words, or perhaps when we're searching for words. I spoke with several friends this week who were angry and injustice. These words can help us answer God about our experience of life under the sun. I know many who are depressed and anxious, both because of COVID and because of the chemistry of their body and because of other circumstances. And these words help us to express to God life as we actually experience it. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I very, very, very much hope that you not only speak to God that way, with comfort, but also that you learn to write similar words that are your own. The hope is that we become not just psalm readers, not just ones who are prayed by the psalms, but um, ones who learn to write our own psalms. Because we don't know for sure, sometimes maybe Psalm 77 could sound whiny, right? If, if all we had was verses 1 through 6, I wonder if it would have made it into the group of psalms. I would have wondered if, if it would have made it into the canon. Because, man, they say I and me a lot. And yet there's a beautiful pivot to questions and then to the promises of God. So I would, I would remind you, if it sounds whiny, I would remind you that the Israelites were almost exclusively a marginalized people. Though they had relative power for much of their history, uh, they were almost exclusively a marginalized people. I would also remind you that grief is an essential human and spiritual skill. I was listening to a podcast this week and it absolutely blew my mind. I don't know if you like the movie Groundhog Day. If you don't, that's okay. Um, Groundhog Day is pretty on the nose right now, by the way, with COVID. All days say, seeming similar. So consider that before maybe considering watching it. But what shocked me both because I had never realized this and because it explains so much about the movie's ongoing uh, popularity is the movie is literally built around the six stages of grief. For those of you that have watched it, if you take out the first part setting up the story um, and jump in about 25, 30 minutes, you watch Phil Connors, Bill Murray go through the five stages of grief and then the sixth stage is alluded to at the end, which is which is meaning. And I say that not because I want to teach a class on grief. I'm not, I'm not uh, capable of doing that. But, well, maybe I am, but it wouldn't be very good. But because I want us to notice in the psalm these words, cry, I cry out to you. Seek. The psalmist is seeking God in prayer. Stretch. Not physical stretching, although the image I hope encourages you, but stretching out to God, longing for a thin place where we can actually sense who he is. Moan, sorry, refuse comfort. Perhaps like a child and perhaps like one actually experiencing life. 
Do you moan in your prayers? I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about a movie where just everybody groans and moans and it was hilarious. And then I returned to Psalm 7, the podcast was hilarious. I returned to Psalm 77 and many other Psalms and, and Paul in Romans 8 talking about the spirit groaning on our behalf. The psalmist describes their spirit as fainting. I hope that you feel comfortable with this incredibly emotive language in part because it is not all there is to the psalm but we are led mentored to do it this is jesus's prayer book this is a book of individual and corporate answers to god about what we see around the world and how we discuss that with him and then doing it remembering to cry out as the psalmist do and then doing it followers of god neither wallow in their pain nor ignore it if we're to be led by the scriptures in response to uh, individual sins perpetrated against us or corporate injustice or oppression that we experience, among the things that we do is learn to speak with him about it. That's not all that we do. And for some of you, when, when I talk about psalms of disorientation, or in this case, psalm of reorientation, I think it sounds like I'm saying you should wallow in what's happened to you. No. In fact, this is one of the ways to not wallow to express it to God and then experience the Holy Spirit moving us out of that expression into a new one, into a moment of reorientation. In this case, on uh, the story of the Exodus, the writer shifts from individual lament into a bridge, verse 10, which we have to talk about because it's very interesting. I don't know if you read the footnote. Into remembrance of God's saving mercies in the Exodus. And I would mention again that the Israelites were exiled. And so sometimes when we think we could ignore our pain or we don't want to wallow in our pain, the Israelites experience something that none of us ever will, I don't think. An entire ripping apart of their race, religion, ethnicity, which was tied to their geography and moved. That is something to uh, lament about. There are a lot of I's in the first couple of verses. Nine, I think. There are a lot of me's and my's just speaking about in verses one through six. We'll talk about the other ones in a second. And sometimes when, we, when we're praying and it's a lot of I's, I've noticed this about myself when I'm uh, relatively disoriented, I say the word I more. And what the Psalms would lead me to do is say those I's to God fully honestly, expecting that part of what happens when I do that is he draws me out of the disintegration of my past and even present and move towards him through prayer, both individually and corporately. Then my spirit made a diligent search. I love that as the pivot point of verse 6 at the end. How does your spirit make a diligent search? Do you journal? Are you already good at lament? I, I hope so. I'm learning. You sing. Many of us sing when we're sad, some only when we're happy. I could probably understand my own feelings and moods better if I thought for a little while, what song do I want to listen to right now? How does your spirit make a diligent search? Is it through conversation? Is it through silence? 
through Instagram, I, I sat in on another pastor leading me in prayer, and, and there were multiple times of silence, and man, my brain went everywhere. Some of you make a diligent search through listening to God, through asking him questions. What do you think about these questions? Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? And remember that the truth of the Psalms is a poetic truth. It is not a scientific truth, and both matter. And if we had to grade them, we would actually say poetic truth perhaps is even more important because the Bible begins and ends with it. Both are important, though. All three are important, actually. Regular language, scientific, and poetic. But as a poetic question, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased That's one of the most important phrases in English and words in the Old Testament and especially in the Psalms. Has his chesed forever ceased? His steadfast, loyal, covenanting love. Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? I think this is probably the one closest to the way that we ask this in 2020. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Again, that word is either a musical or poetic term for pausing meditation then I said I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the most high and if you read in your footnote it says or because the Hebrew is real tricky this is my grief that the right hand of the most high has changed and that's going to challenge those of us that are familiar with theology especially reformed theology because we know the more theological, i.e. scientific, if it's scientific, regular, and poetic, the statements that God does not change. But if we're looking at this through the poetic truth of it, we experience life as though God has changed, don't we? Doesn't it seem like he has? That's the point the psalmist is making. He's not attempting to combat Romans, which teaches us about the theology of God. In fact, Romans quotes the psalms regularly, And we don't know what happened after verse 10. But before I get to that, of course God doesn't change scientific truth, but we experience life as though he did. I think the way that we ask this is, why did God do this? And listen, for all of our intellectual grappling with that question, we also are led by the Psalms to pray as we actually experience Verse 10 is when this really begins to pivot. So verses 1 through 6 are all the I's and me's and individual problems that the the person had with their life. Verse 7, 8, 9 is beginning to turn to God and, and actually ask him honest questions. Verse 10 is the pivot towards his promises, the reorientation. Before I get to that part of it, what are your honest questions? About your city? history around us about your own story and your own past when you get to them in prayer if uh, they're even moderately disorienting I wouldn't try to pack all of them into one psalm what are your honest questions for God about your life or your history when we were doing our confession a moment ago I was thinking about my town that I grew up in and my family and my friends who are black 
And there's a lot to say about all of that. I have a lot of honest questions for God that I'm learning to write in psalmic form to him, knowing that he's gracious and his steadfast love hasn't ceased, but sometimes it seems that it has. Remembering to cry out and then doing it transcend our moment. So those of you that thought verses 1 through 6 felt a little bit whiny probably enjoy verses 10 through 12, which is where the diligent search of the soul begins to yield good fruit. Soul coaching, way better than life coaching. I've been talking with some friends recently about self-help books, and uh, my definition of a self-help book is tactics that harm us if they don't rest on true good news about God and who he is. And I don't mean that the self-help book has to be Christian. I mean, if you have a good foundation, then you can learn from one. But there is no self-help book that has the power to heal. And therefore, if our foundation is not knowing that we're loved by God and forgiven by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit, self-help books actually harm us because they give us more ways to control instead of heal. And the reason I bring that up is because the writer of Psalm 77 is coaching his or her soul. Depending on how you read a psalm of Asaph, whether Asaph was a person or a school of thought. Then I said, I will appeal to this to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then there's no more mention of I or me. Through worship, individual and communal, the Psalms have been used as individual and communal prayers and songs for thousands of years. We give our eyes and me's to him with honesty, and then we move into his promises. I think our version of the questions of verses 7, 8, and 9 is, why did God do this? And I think that's an honest question, and I hope you've asked it. Most of you have experienced more than enough in this life to have asked that numerous times. And I hope that you've asked it not because of... uh, an overly pers- not because you're going to get a super precise answer in the sixth stage of grief, which is meaning we, we start to find meaning in much of what's happened to us. But the reason I want you to ask it is it's modeled for us. Jesus did it. If Jesus lamented, how is it that we don't? But here's what Psalm 77 leads us to understand. If we are not the center of the world, then worship is a more full answer than a direct answer to the question. See what I'm saying? If we ask God, why did you do this? Our paraphrase of verses 7, 8, and 9. And then we're led through our lament, and then our honest questions, and then our experience of life, verse 10, into worship. Worship is a more profound answer to our very being than a temporal or some kind of precise answer that really doesn't deliver if our questions have any complexity to them at all. Verses 11 and 12 feel odd unless the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we utilize as a theological uh, backbone of how our denomination, our church, think about God especially, and what he says about himself. The, the first question in it is this, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
if we're not the center of the universe, if in fact it's God, then one of the many responses to both our pain, the injustice and oppression we see around us, is to worship. It is not all that we do, but in a world that still is under a curse, and humans continue to perpetuate oppression and violence towards and with one another, and the evil one has not been locked away forever, then our worship is an act of resistance against all of those things, and an act of bringing in the kingdom, slower than we might imagine, but bringing it to bear on our lives and hearts. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God, verse 13 says. Calling him God and learning to enjoy calling him God with our words as we pray individually and corporately, as we sing, is an act of healing and resistance and kingdom justice in the world. And it settles us like thunder. The imagery from Psalm 77 is of the Exodus And I wonder if this seems irrelevant to your life. I worry about uh, those of us in our congregation that are married. I imagine your marriage is, uh, feels a little worse, a little more tense because of COVID. Or it's actually the same. And if it's the same, give thanks to God. And for some of you, you've actually experienced some joy in that. And I know whatever side of the spectrum you're on, you're just shocked that for some this has been a good time. Your worship of God is part of how you're capable of moving towards your spouse in love because you're not asking them to deliver the way only God can. Your worship is part of how you move towards your children with something close to almost patience. Because when you worship God and remember that he is a good father to you in spite of all that you've done, it's a little bit easier to get down on their level and to not raise your voice. I raised my voice on Thursday over decimals, by the way. We're in this together. My daughter's so good at them, and yet I still run out of patience. And my worship this morning, thank you, Nancy and Dan, for leading us in song. My worship as confession and through the Psalms leads me to something closer to patience with my children. And you're like, I wish it worked a little bit faster. Yeah, me too. I worry about those of you that are single. I hope you're still able to do community. I see people continuing to, to take a little more risk here and there in their neighborhoods and partly because I can't control anybody, and also because I know how very lonely life is for many of us, I hope that you understand that your worship is part and parcel of a resistance to the loneliness of the world. I believe the human condition without God is loneliness. Many of us are grieving right now for individual and acute things that happened in our family, because of the ongoing racism. What, and, and by the way, I'm not saying what we should do about that. I'm simply listening to my friends. And if I'm listening to them, then it is a very real and a very large problem. What we do about that is going to be partisan because that's the best we've got in this country. But Christians first lament and listen, and one of the things that we lament 
and listen to are the cries of the friends in our town, in our region, in our nation. Some of you are grieving over those things. Some of you feel guilty about how much you enjoy COVID. I have a friend, not in our church, easy on the judgment, who loves being in her house and, and almost never leaving except for walks. And worship settles us that it's all right to experience life the way that we experience it. In the focuses of the promise of God as he brings us out of slavery to sin and death, he settles us like thunder in our marriages, in our singleness, in our grief, in our parenting, in our friendships. So this is a remember of the actual exodus. This is poetry about the events where the nation of Israel was enslaved and was brought out of slavery. In the exodus, not only uh, was an incredible act of God's redeeming love for his people, but is also the chief metaphor of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And the reason I included that verse is it's a reference to the nation of Israel and the way they did civic and ceremonial and moral law, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The disenfranchised pray the Psalms, and we remember, at least as a metaphor, that because of the work of Christ, we were once far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Psalm 77 teaches us so many things. It draws us into a, a personal and dynamic and honest relationship with God. It pivots on his promises and reminds us that worship is an act of resistance against all evil and all the pain that we've experienced. And it reminds us, because of the New Testament metaphors, utilizing the exodus, that because of the work of Christ, we are forever reoriented to the Father. Often, psalms of reorientation end with kind of a bow, you know? Probably the most famous psalm of reorientation is Psalm 23. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But I love that Psalm 77 doesn't, because the writer is so caught up in the worship of God and the hope that that means. He simply worships, or she, until they stop writing. Worship, the true activity of calling God, God, of thanking him, is how we shed the eye, the over-concern, the over-focused narcissism that all of us are prone to, by being honest about it with God, and then reflecting on his promises and then receiving praising words. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, a literal path of freedom for the Israelites in the book of Exodus. 
and a metaphorical path for us. The work of Christ frees us to love God and all the neighbors we find in our life, which is incredibly challenging. And one of the tools he gives us to remember that and be empowered by the Holy Spirit through it are the Psalms. The cries of the disenfranchised who remember the promises of God as we await his removal of all evil, injustice, oppression, racism, death, and sin. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you that none of this is a surprise. We praise you that none of the things that have happened to us are a surprise, though that is going to be something we're going to probably need to take up with you again and again. We praise you that this church is who you've called it to be, which does not mean we do not need to grow as your agents of love and reconciliation and peace. We praise you that you have put us into the families you've put us into, though that is a challenge that we will need to take up with you again. We praise you that our church has work to do in our town, telling people about your kingdom and acting as best as we can in line with your description of the kingdom, where justice reigns and oppression is forever gone. Teach us both what is and is not ours to do, Lord. Teach us to pray. We thank you for your good news in Christ. Amen.